This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello, awesome listeners, and welcome to episode 45. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a syndrome that is poorly understood and not a lot of people know about it. It's called Capgras syndrome. So let's start. When I first started working as a nurse practitioner in the memory clinic almost eight years ago, I was hired as the care refusal expert because of my knowledge and research in that area of dementia behaviors. At the time, I was running my own federally funded study, which involved testing methods for getting people with dementia who lived in nursing homes to accept mouth care. When one of the physicians referred a patient to me who was refusing to allow her husband to help her with bathing and dressing, I didn't think anything of it. Wow, I was so wrong. Turns out, the woman living with dementia was refusing her husband's help because he was not her husband. And she's sitting there in the office just telling me this. The man brought her, and I even asked her, who's this gentleman who brought you to your appointment? He's a nice guy, but he's not my real husband. She then proceeded to tell me that her real husband had been replaced by a double who looked like him, talked like him, acted like him, but wasn't him. She also shared that there were several imposters representing her husband in the house. As I listened to her story in the clinic, I was both fascinated and overwhelmed. I had never encountered the situation in the many years I provided care to people living with dementia in nursing homes. Luckily, one of the senior neurologists happened to be in the clinic. I described the scenario to him and he immediately told me that my patient was likely experiencing Capgras syndrome. He quickly pulled up some references to the syndrome from the PubMed database, and we started looking at it. And the first thing I thought was how the available information was really sparse and contradictory. The publications were case study after case study, and it seemed that every author had his or her own theory about the cause. One thing I did see, the the general theme, was that the treatment was pharmacologic. Prescribe some antipsychotic medication and hope the behavior goes away. That was the recurring theme when I would skip to the treatment section. I returned to the room and explained what was going on to the husband Your wife is experiencing something called a delusion, a fixed false belief. Her specific delusion is known as Capgras syndrome. We are not sure why this happens, but people with dementia 
sometimes believe that family members are replaced by doubles. I like to try some quetiapine, 25 milligrams, twice a day. When I checked back a week later, the quetiapine was helping. She still was not convinced that her husband was the real one, but she was allowing him to help her with her care. For today's podcast, I want to dive deeper into Capgras syndrome, why we think it happens, and what to do about it. The information available today is better than what I had access to in 2014, but not by much. So, spoiler alert, if you are listening and you're thinking, oh, I'm not, I don't need this, I might listen because it's cool, my loved one isn't doing this, spoiler alert, it is more common in people with Lewy body dementia and it occurs in the middle to late moderate to severe stages. So, just put it out there. But I want to talk about the historical origins of Capgras syndrome because the historical origins are, are pretty cool. In 1923, basically 99 years ago, Joseph Capgras was a French psychiatrist and he was taking care of a woman who he described as Madame M. And he described this unique behavior. Now, Madame N was Emerson Martha Madame M was 53 years old, and at that point in her life, she had suffered the loss of two to three children. Some sources mentioned twin sons, other sources mentioned a daughter and twin sons, but regardless, she experienced significant loss. Soon after these losses, Madame M became convinced that her husband and remaining children were duplicates. Prior to these delusions, she had no psychiatric problems, or at least none that anybody admitted to. Dr. Capgrass named this behavior illusion of doubles. And it sounds really great in French, but I'm not even going to try that. Capgrass syndrome is part of a larger group of delusional behaviors known as delusional misidentification syndrome. Other delusions that are grouped into this delusional misidentification syndrome group include people not recognizing themselves in the mirror or people thinking that there are other people in the house even though they cannot hear or see them. They just know there's other people running around. They feel it. Now, that's different from hallucinations in which the person is literally looking at a blank wall and, and talking as if they're talking to someone or they're telling you about the children standing in the corner. That's different. But if you decide to be brave and dive into the medical literature you will quickly get confused and aggravated because that delusion that there's more people in the house, I have, the neurologist I work with call it having borders, but there's a more technical term for it that doesn't quite, to me, make sense. But if you look up delusional misidentification syndrome, some 
researchers and dementia experts actually describe the sensation that there's more people around as a hallucination, which I hate because to, I, I think that just muddies the water, but that's me. Okay, so how prevalent is Hapgrass syndrome? First, it can affect anyone with dementia, but as I said a little earlier, it seems to be most common in Lewy body dementia. One study that happened at the Mayo Clinic went back and looked at the records of everyone with a Capgras diagnosis. And out of the, I think, 38, 40 people that they were able to identify, the majority of the people with Capgras syndrome had a diagnosis of Lewy body dementia, 68%, compared to 18% who had a probable Alzheimer's diagnosis. And this was a 2007 study, but it's one of the few that was designed the way it was designed. And the studies that really informed the majority of this podcast, I do have listed in the show notes with hyperlinks if you really want to look at the original research and decide for yourself. And interestingly enough, in that same 2007 study done by, let me look it up, ah, Josephs, K.A. Josephs, in that original 2007 study, one of the individuals with Alzheimer's and Capgras died and their brain was autopsied. And not only did they see Alzheimer's pathology, they did locate Lewy body cells in the brain tissue. And as I've said in previous podcasts, it's not unusual to have two or more pathologies going on, especially as people age. Now I'm talking about Lewy body, and some of you may be thinking, what about people with Parkinson's disease dementia? Yes, people with Parkinson's disease dementia can experience capgrass, but the numbers that I was encountering in the literature was real low. Some people were talking like a half a percent. And I wonder if it is more prevalent than we know about. It may be that the neurologist may not be asking the question or the family members don't want to bring it up or they're not, they don't feel like they can bring it up in the clinic visit. Because one of the things I've noticed is that neurologists who focus on movement disorders and in particular Parkinson's disease, uh, they don't always assess for cognitive issues. They're more focused on the movement issues, titrating, the cinemat. They may be aware of hallucinations and other problems, but I've, I have spent time over in movement disorder clinics, and I did notice that clinicians did not always assess cognitive status. They were much more focused on the movement issue because, you know, there is a lot going on in the appointment and we have but so much time. So 
I'm wondering if there's higher numbers of people with Parkinson's disease who are experiencing cognitive impairment and if Capgras syndrome may be more present than is being captured. But that's just Rita Jablonski's musings. I don't have anything to back that up. One thing I did find repeated across different studies is that Capgras syndrome is more likely to occur in people in the middle to late moderate stage of dementia and severe stage of dementia and in people already experiencing visual hallucinations. So that's pretty interesting. Okay, I'm going to take a real quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about the causes of Capgras syndrome, at least what we believe today to be the causes. So I'll be right back. What causes Capgras syndrome? The current theory involves a breakdown between multiple parts of the brain responsible for recognizing faces and linking emotions to those faces. Before I go too deep, here is a quick and dirty neurobiology lesson. The temporal lobes, which sit behind the temples and a little above the ears, are predominantly involved with understanding and interpreting verbal language, but are also important for understanding sights, understanding what you are seeing. The occipital lobes located at the back of the head are very important for vision, for taking the messages from the eyes and translating the messages into shapes and pictures. The temporal and occipital lobes work together in a coordinated fashion to help the brain recognize visual images. In fact, there's something called posterior cortical atrophy. It's a type of Alzheimer's in which the back of the head, especially the occipital lobe, shrinks faster than other parts of the brain. Excuse me. And people have trouble interpreting what they see. They will literally be looking right at a mug of coffee and the family member will say, pick up your coffee and they'll say, where is it? They, their eyes are picking up the signals and the retina is getting those signals and the retina is sending the signals up through the optic nerve, but it's getting to the occipital lobe. Actually, there's two lobes. It's getting to the occipital lobes. And because that occipital lobe is so damaged, they can't make sense of what they see. They cannot perceive what they are seeing. Also, the scientists believe that there's more to the occipital lobes than just that. But again, there's so much about the brain that we continue to learn about. But anyway, scientists believe that specific areas in both of these lobes work together to recognize faces. The inferior occipital gyrus, the lateral occipitotemporal gyrus, and the superior temporal sulcus. 
And in case you really wanted to know, when you look at the picture of the brain, a gyrus, that is the raised part, the poofy parts or the puffy parts of the brain and the sulcus, that's the space between each gyrus. It's the valley of the brain because the brain is really, if you think about it, it's like one big, massive picture, like a massive beach ball that you inflate a little bit and then you mush on that beach ball and the surface folds up on each other. I guess another way to to think about it is if you were holding something that was soft and gooey and if, if you had it in a ball and you started to squeeze it, the surface would fold upon each other. Well, that's what the brain is. It's really, it's made up of all these folds. And so the raised part of the fold is called the gyrus. And the bottom part of the fold is called a sulcus. And if you're talking about more than one sulcus, the plural is sulci. Okay, that is your neurobiology lesson for today. So once a face is recognized, then other parts of the brain kick in. These other parts are recruited to retrieve and analyze emotional information about that face. The parts that hold the emotion are known as the limbic system. And the limbic system includes the amygdala and the hippocampus plus other pieces of the brain. Let me give you an example of how that would work. Next week is my son and his fiance's wedding shower. So we're all getting together to celebrate this and give them presents. Let's say it's next Saturday and I walk into the room where the party's being held and I immediately see my son. My brain thanks to the inferior occipital gyrus, the lateral occipitotemporal gyrus, and the superior temporal sulcus, thanks to those three pieces of the brain, they will help me recognize, oh, that is, that is Mark Jablonski. That's my son. But as soon as that's happening... There's other parts of my brain that as the brain is being recognized, a name is assigned to the brain. The limbic system holds all those many emotions of love, of pride, of missing, since he doesn't live nearby, of being happy to see him. Or even, or maybe being sad that I'm only going to see him for a little bit and then I won't see him again till the wedding. So all of those emotions that are living in the limbic, limbic, hmm, can't talk, limbic system are released and they are attached to the picture of Mark in my brain. So first all the emotions come up and then the emotions are analyzed And when they're analyzed, I conclude that I love him and I'm proud of his accomplishments 
including the fact that he convinced this lovely woman to put up with his shit and marry him. And even though it took me several minutes, probably seven minutes, to explain all of this, the neurons are sparking and sending messages and accomplishing all of this in not even microseconds, in nanoseconds. This is fast. And this happens every time we see a face. And the more closer we are to a person, the more important the person is to us in our lives, the more the emotional entanglements, the more that emotional component bubbles up from the limbic system and attaches itself to the memory of the face, the facial recognition. Okay. That's what happens in a healthy brain. And also in a healthy brain, messages are sent from one part of the brain to other parts of the brain by very complicated and busy networks. Or you could think of them as highways, which are made up of gazillions of neurons who pass messages up and down the networks, almost like runners in a relay race passing the baton to each other except it's neurochemicals, like dopamine and stuff. As these neurons die off from the dementia pathology, the networks or the highways become unreliable and messages do not get consistently passed from the limbic system to the temporal lobes. In the dementia-damaged brain, Two bad things are happening relatively at the same time. First, you have parts of the temporal lobe and occipital lobe. And even though I'm I'm saying lobe, I really mean both of them because you have one on each side. But basically, you have parts of the temporal lobes and parts of the occipital lobes that are shrinking. They are experiencing loss of neurons. So the Connections within the lobes themselves are being disrupted. And the connections between the limbic system and the temporal lobes are also eroding away. You put those both together and what you get is a weird situation where the person living with dementia recognizes the face but does not experience the emotional connection to that face. And they realize something is off, something is missing, but they don't have enough cognitive reserve and insight to say what it is that's missing. They don't know that the emotional connection is missing. The dementia brain then jumps to its own version of logic and offers an explanation that the real person is gone and has been replaced with a lookalike imposter because when the person living with dementia is looking at that loved one, it feels very two-dimensional and plastic. It, It feels fake. Therefore, the dementia brain concludes, must be a fake, must be an imposter. 
as more of the temporal and occipital lobes shrink, even the ability to recognize faces becomes more impaired, and the person living with dementia may soon believe that there are three, four, or even ten imposters for the one real spouse or other close family member. I guess another way to think about this is when I recognize a family member's face, I have, I I call it the card deck of images. I'm sure I have buried in my brain images of when, and again, I'll I'll use my son since he's being featured in, in this podcast, much to his chagrin. He doesn't actually listen to this podcast. Some of his coworkers do, so they'll, you know, most likely make fun of him. And his sister does. Hey, Sarah, if you're listening, hope the Randox machine didn't break again. But anyway, since I am featuring him and, you know, giving him a shout out in this podcast, as I think about my son, Mark, I have images of him when he was born, when he was a toddler, when he was three, when he was five, when he was in middle school, high school, etc. Even in high school, his appearance fluctuated as he lost weight, became more athletic, gained weight, and then went to the police academy, lost a whole bunch of weight again. And now he's getting tattoos. So I'm sure my mental image of him would then incorporate the body art. So I have all these snapshots of my son in the memory banks. Now, nobody in the literature offered this up as an explanation. So again, I'm pretty much pulling this out of my knowledge and interpretation. But I wonder if the shrinkage of the temporal and occipital lobes are screwing around with the recognition of the faces and somehow subtle changes that we see day to day. Maybe one day the person looks more tired or their hair is a little messy, but all these subtle changes that we say, oh yeah, but that's still Mark. I'm wondering if I had dementia if I had this syndrome going on, if I would see subtle changes and somehow conclude Nah, that's not quite him. That must be an, it it looks a lot like Mark, but this must be the mean Mark or the happy Mark. And I also wonder is if as we interact with our loved ones with dementia, if we are exhibiting different moods, if because of malfunctions with the limbic system and with the other lobes, if the person is thinking that there is the nice Mark, the cranky Mark, the tired Mark, the police Mark. Maybe Mark shows up in his uniform. Maybe another day he shows up in jogging shorts. There's the Mark who has the dog. I really wonder if that's also happening because there are documented cases of, and and I actually saw this in clinic the few times I've seen Capgrass, where the individual suffering from dementia was convinced that there were several versions of the primary family member running around the house. 
And the other piece is, like I said, cat grass only seems to impact close family members, people where you have a really strong emotional attachment. And again, this is likely due to the high emotional connections associated with these particular family members. Okay, great. I told you about this syndrome. And those of you who are listening, who are dealing with this are all excited because they know what the next part is, the approach. I'm sorry to say this, but it's a bitch. Okay. It's tricky. As I've said in the other 44 podcast episodes, and at this point, say it together with me, people arguing with the person living with dementia is pointless. You're not going anywhere. Sometimes family members who know this, who know arguing is basically a waste of time, they go, huh, what if I agree with the person? Like entering their reality? This is, no, this is going to bite you in the ass because sometimes family members will admit they are imposters in an attempt to go along, which again makes sense because arguing does not work. However, like I said, it bites them in the ass because the person living with dementia will somehow remember that the family member admitted they were an imposter. And this admission only strengthens the delusion. So let's say you're like, fine, they think I'm fake wife. So I tell my husband, yeah, that's right. I'm the fake wife. The real wife went to the store. And you're probably thinking, I wish I had 10 versions of me. I get a lot of crap done. And you complete the day and you get up the next morning and it's really important for you that your husband recognizes it's you, you're the wife and you're interacting with him and you say, no, I'm really Rita. I'm really your wife. And he looks at you and says, no, you'd already said that you were the imposter. Ha ha. I caught you. So you, you see where I'm going with this now. Some approaches that might work include audio before visual stimuli. In other words, what you may want to do is let's say you're entering the room where your loved one lives and what you can do is you can call out before they see you. Hey, honey. It's me, Rita, your wife. I'm coming into the bedroom and then walk into the bedroom. It's possible that your family member's brain will successfully link the sound of your voice to the positive emotions. Like the same stuff I talked about a few minutes ago about the emotional connection between the visual and the limbic system. It's possible that the limbic system may still be connected to the parts of the temporal lobe that process sound. And it is possible that the connections are made and your loved one hears your voice and goes, oh, cool, here comes real Rita. So that when you do step in front of them, maybe the emotional connection is still there. It's still linked to the sound of your voice, if not the recognition of your face. So the emotional component is still like, those neurons are firing 
and then they see the visual, but they're seeing the visual why the emotional component is still firing. So even though they're not connected, they're happening at the same time. And so the person feels, okay, here's the real spouse. Here's the real Rita. Now, if that doesn't work or it works sometimes and doesn't work other times, like everything else, another approach is to emphasize the positive aspect of your presence. I'm here to help you. I'm here to make sure you are safe. So if they're like, I don't want to talk to you. I want my real wife. Yes, I hear you. But I'm here right now to help. Let me help you get your pants. Let me, how about you put this shirt on? Yeah, but you're not my real husband. I know I'm, I, I know it feels that way. And let me help you this. Or, or again, you can even make it shorter. Okay, I hear you. I want to help. At least I can be helpful. And I've had family members get really creative with this. Your family member the best. And I'll leave some of that up to you. Now, all of the articles I read as I prepared this podcast listed second-generation antipsychotics, specifically quetiapine, also known as Seroquel, as helpful in decreasing, even stopping, Capgras syndrome. One article that I read, and I have it listed in the show notes, including two other helpful articles that inform this podcast and that I referenced with the numbers and the prevalence and some of the stuff I talked about. The one article, which one is it? It is the Canis Maloney and the rest of the authors. Capgras Syndrome and Parkinson's Disease, Two New Cases in Literature Review. It's the first one. That article talked, it, it, it provided a case study of two patients with Parkinson's disease who developed, one had, seemed like one had mild cognitive impairment, the other one was more impaired, and they developed Capgras Syndrome. And in both cases, the clinicians reversed the Capgras by dramatically dropping the levodopa dosage. And if you're listening, don't do that. Check with your provider before you start messing around with medications. Because, yes, they did reduce levodopa, but that's also going to cause other problems. And and they did they just didn't lower the levodopa, they also added the quetiapine. So I was thinking, what if they kept the levodopa the same and added the quetiapine? Don't know. But these are case studies, which means it's one or two people. And just because something worked for one or two people doesn't mean it's going to work for the universe. So please don't mess with your loved one's medications and consult their provider before you do anything. And if you really want to be prepared, you can always go to the show notes, click the link, and print out the articles and bring them with you to the appointment. Because even though I'm in an environment where I know my shit, where I'm an expert in dementia, so the people who come into the clinic and see me, they're, they're getting that benefit. And the neurologists I work with are extremely well-respected and nationally known in their fields, and they are experts. 
even though I'm fortunate to live with the people writing these articles, not these specific articles, but they publish, a lot of you may be in areas of the world or in the U.S. where you're working with a generic neurologist who really is woefully unprepared, really doesn't understand dementia because you specialize in it. And, or you may have the unfortunate experience of being stuck with a specific clinician who thinks they know about dementia, but they don't know shit. Yep. I know who they are too. Anyway, then you can print out those articles and at least walk in the door with them in your hand. In conclusion, Capgras syndrome is a poorly understood phenomenon that occurs across the dementias, but seems to be more prevalent in Lewy body dementia. Many clinicians and researchers continue to describe it as a psychiatric illness, which drives me crazy. And it's a description that I find very unhelpful because there are neurodegenerative changes that can help explain, at least hypothetically, what's going on. Not because of an edible complex or some Freudian bullshit. So for those of you struggling with this behavior, I hope my podcast sheds some light onto this problem and helped you feel a little less alone. For those of you listening who aren't dealing with this behavior, I think you learned something. And hopefully this is not a behavior that shows up in your world, but if it does, you will be ready. And together, we can make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia, and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.